Hey everyone, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Raymond Docapil. And I'm Sophie Klombarens. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we'll be discussing William Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Othello, The Moor of Venice. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. This episode marks the end of season one for Unreliable Narrators. Shortly after recording this episode, we discovered that Othello was to be discontinued from the Mars Hill list. Our next episode will mark the beginning of Season 2, which will include many of the new topics introduced for the 2022-23 to competitive season, such as Encanto, West Side Story, Henry V, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and much more. Check out the new list at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com and write to us if you'd like to hear us discuss a topic. Enjoy the episode. I'm still laughing about the fact that two episodes ago you said this is a podcast where we discussed media, literature, and the arts. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to avoid that mistake <laughs> this time, and <laughs> it, we was, don't, uh, dif- it was a difficult. We don't want to discuss media, literature, out, and the arts. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to discuss them. That would be That would be a lot. That would be much. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> All right. Uh, well, welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators. Today, we're going to be tackling our first Shakespeare play. I hope we do uh, more of this. Mm-hmm. Sophie is a bit of a Shakespeare uh, maniac, one might say. It is I was going to say expert, but I think maniac <laughs> may be more accurate. It's probably um, true. <laughs> yeah. I learned some interesting things yesterday before we recorded. First, uh, Sophie hates Othello. <laughs> I do. I do. To be but, clear, I hate the character of Othello. The play is good, but it's good partially because it succeeds in making me just despise the character of Othello. Yeah. Well, I didn't. it hadn't occurred to me before that Othello was the person I was supposed to hate. I actually didn't have any particular feelings of animosity uh for othello and maybe i mean for those of you who are not familiar uh spoilers othello murders his wife yep (laughs) so anyway you should have read the play by now i will i'm not sure i'm actually not sure that you are supposed to hate othello like i'm not you you may have been having the reaction that Shakespeare intended his audiences to have, which is because it is a tragedy and the form of tragedy implies that you feel pity for the protagonist, not just hatred. So you may have been having the correct reaction and I may be just having whatever reaction I'm having. I think my reaction is correct, but I don't know if it's the intended one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, like when he strangles his wife, you know, Part of me is just like, well, that's what you get for being in a Shakespeare play, you know? So <laughs> That's her problem. Yes. She, was, she decided to be a Shakespeare character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I was like, this is kind of par for the course. So maybe if it was in a different setting, I would be more shocked than I was. <laughs> um, 
But also, yeah, it's like, it's a tragedy. And I also think, I don't know, I feel like tragedies, tragedies are kind of, they've kind of disappeared from modern literature and film. Why do you think that is? Is it that we've just kind of gotten soft in the head? Um, we can't stomach tragedies anymore? Um, I actually think it's more that we don't understand what a tragedy is and how the form of it works. Um, and that's partially just because our expectations for storytelling have changed. So Aristotle wrote a work called Poetics. And in Poetics, he basically outlined what he thought was the ideal rules for how you tell a story. Because the way Aristotle thought about everything is he broke everything down into its component parts and he explained them and he, he took things apart to see how they worked. Um, and he was taking apart stories to see how they worked. But at that time, really, the only thing that really classified as a story, besides epics and stuff like that, were tragedies. Because tragedies were really the only serious storytelling that you had. Um, and so a lot of his rules relate to the fact that uh, there are these tragic dramas that are being told on stage. And the purpose of a tragedy is that you have a protagonist who is in some position of power, which is why, like, the tragedy of Julius Caesar, the tragedy of Hamlet, the tragedy of Macbeth, every single one of those characters is in some important position or some position of power. Often they're kings. Um, in the tragedy of Julius Caesar, you know, he is just made dictator of Rome. Uh, he's in a really high position of power. In Hamlet, he's the prince of Denmark. In Macbeth, he... Uh, has just been, he's just received all of these glorious honors in battle and things like that. So you start with a protagonist who isn't necessarily likable, but they have some position of power and they have some sort of fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw um, is the thing that destroys them. Whatever their fatal flaw is, they succumb to it over the course of the play um, usually there are external forces working on them, but also the external forces are really just hitting the spot perfectly. They're just, they're perfectly interacting with the hero's fatal flaw in order to bring about his downfall. And then your reaction at the end is you're supposed to feel pity for the protagonist and fear. And then through the pity and fear, there's this cleansing of your senses. Basically, you're comparing the tragedy to your real life, and you're like, well, I have all these problems, but they're not as bad as Hamlet's problems, or they're not as bad as Oedipus's problems, and that means that they're actually not that bad. Um, and it's like a purging of emotion because it's forcing you to feel emotions. That's how Aristotle thought about tragedy, and that's second nature to everyone who's ever seen a Greek drama back in Aristotle's time. But now, the way that we think about stories now, that's not a natural form of storytelling, and I think we prefer happier endings, and I think we also don't really understand the purpose of catharsis, which is the purging of emotions through pity and fear. Um, that doesn't sound like a desirable experience to us. <laughs> we think, well, why would I want to go watch a movie or read a book in which the purpose is to make me feel negative emotions? Aren't I reading stories in order to escape negative emotions? I have enough negative emotions in my real life. Um, and yet we do still see stories that are tragedies in popular culture. Like, I just watched the new version of West Side Story, and that's a tragedy. But also, funnily enough, it's a tragedy because it's based on Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and Romeo and Juliet is a traditional tragedy. Um, the, the number of writers or storytellers who are really 
creating or inventing new tragedies and not just basing their stories on old tragedies really isn't very high. And I think it's just because we think of stories as escapism from negative emotions and tragedies are designed to create negative emotions, which I think is why it's sort of fallen out of style. Right. Yeah. But I think that's that's pro- that's definitely true. But also what I think is interesting is that I watch a lot of modern movies where you it, I get a very clear sense that like, OK, if I actually followed the logical progression of things that are happening, this story should not end happily. Because mm-hmm. I'm all for a happy ending. You know, I like a happy ending. If yep. I can believe that that happy ending makes sense, like that that could happen if it's plausible to me. But for a lot of stories that have a really great setup, like I'm really drawn into it, and then you you just see things just barreling towards disaster. And yet, <laughs> and at the end of this, just like, oh, you know, some money showed up and everything was fine yeah and it's so clear it's so clear that this was going to be a great tragedy but it's just like tragedy is out of fashion now so Mm -hmm. we just don't do that anymore um so anyway i think that what i guess is a question that we should ask here is are the events of othello at least in some sense inevitable right like Let's take like Titanic, for example, because there's this, I think Titanic's a great example because everyone talks about how Titan, in Titanic, uh, the, the, the little piece of that Jack and Rose of wood that Jack and Rose were on were big enough for the two of them. Like there was room for Jack on their little driftwood for him to be on. Right. So why did he have to die? And everyone is just like, it's just like par for the course. Everyone just assumes like that's the conclusion we need to come to and james cameron actually came out and said okay yeah um maybe i could have made the driftwood smaller but if the (laughs) script says that jack has to die jack has to die and i accept that you know yeah i see this is this makes sense for the story and so really it was just a bad uh memo that made the driftwood too big um but I think I think that there was a, a sort of direction in the story that was moving towards that. Um, but then there's also the question of whether, and and this is a question in Othello, whether, although inevitable, did these characters actually kind of bring it upon themselves at the same time? Yeah. Um, so that gives us, that opens up a lot of questions about whether people are free or determined, right? Right. Well, that's actually, if I can jump in, that's one element of the Shakespearean tragedy that's really important, is that Shakespearean tragedies aren't tragic unless they're brought about by choices that the characters are making. Um, In a Greek tragedy, like in Oedipus Rex, really, really brief summary of the plot of Oedipus Rex, uh, Oedipus, there's a prophecy that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother, he leaves his what he thinks is his home country in order to avoid that. It turns out that he was actually adopted, and he goes back to his actual home country. He does kill his father. He does marry his mother. He doesn't realize it. And then years later, he finds out that he did all that. Um, and he, he, performs the own inve- he, he performs the investigation that reveals 
that he was the one to kill his father and marry his mother. And everyone keeps telling him, no, you don't want to know this. Stop investigating. But he keeps doing it anyway. In that story, there is kind of this idea that the gods are just, this is just fated to happen. There's a prophecy. You can't avoid it. And Oedipus Rex is just sort of caught in the, in the, the snares of fate. But in a Shakespearean tragedy, it's really important that you have free will and that you bring about your own destruction. And you might do it in a way that's sympathetic because the flaw that you have is a real human flaw that everyone has or that some people relate to. But you, you make choices. You're the one who caused your, your downfall. And there's mm-hmm. not really an idea that it's just fate that's making it happen. There might be an external force like the witches in Macbeth who tell you what's going to happen, but they just have knowledge of who you are. They know the kind of person Macbeth is, and they know the kind of person that Lady Macbeth is. And Mm -hmm. he's making these choices, even if he's maybe influenced by the fact that someone told him you could be king, and that sort of poisons his mind. But that ambition was already there, and the choices led us to that. Yeah, I think that lays the groundwork pretty well, so let's talk about the setup of Othello here and fill in the gaps for me if I'm missing anything. Mm-hmm. So Othello, is it, uh, the play is set in Venice. Our main characters, we have um, Othello the Moor, um, Iago the antagonist, and Desdemona is Othello's wife. Um, so there are a couple other uh, important side uh, side sub players here sub what do you call them sub characters uh supporting uh, characters sub supporting characters yes <laughs> emilia wife to iago uh Roderico, Roderico, which is iago's kind of accomplice uh we have cassio who ends up being kind of iago's dupe and i think those are the main people that we're going to be talking about um mm-hmm. so othello is married to Desdemona, a beautiful Venetian lady. And Othello is referred to as the Moor. So most readings, at least today, there's a kind of assumption that Othello was a black African, which is entirely plausible. However, there's a lot of dispute over the actual race of Othello particularly because the categories of race were not quite as clearly defined in Shakespeare's time as it was now. So the more, I think more just is the Greek word for black or dark. And more, a more was referred, could refer to someone who was uh, Turkish, Spanish, or someone from from an African country. Um it could mean a lot of different things, but usually it referred to someone who was dark-skinned. So Spanish people were considered dark-skinned. They were swarthy, at least compared to Venetians. Um, so there is not quite a clear uh, consensus on exactly what Othello's race was meant to be. Uh, I tend to think that there's an argument to be made that there was some sort of implication that he was meant to be Turkish. Although, again, there are a lot of people, there's other, there's evidence that counteracts that. I mean, I think it's deliberately vague. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's interesting things to be read into if we interpret Othello as being a Turk. Namely, the fact that the Ottoman Empire was 
actually a thing almost kind of forgotten today in modern history that the Ottoman Empire was a huge thing at that time. Yeah. And probably was taking a bigger place on the political stage than, say, the transatlantic slave trade, which came, which became a much bigger player during the 19th century. Um, mm -hmm. But there's lots of reference to Turks. And I think which is interesting here, um, so there's a couple things in reference to Turks, which would have been part and parcel of Shakespeare's wor world, that reference to Turks or Moors would have been synonymous with, Mus with being Muslim. So there's also this attitude towards of Othello or an implication that not only is he a different person, but he's, he's a different religion. Right. And there's also this phrase called turning Turk, which is used at that time. And turning Turk means uh, Muslim converts who reverted back to their old ways. And there's an association with that and violence at the same time. And that's something, that's a language that Othello uses. I think he's breaking up a brawl at some point. And he says, what have we done, gentlemen? Are we turning Turk again? Mm. Um, so there's that. Okay, so they don't really, so so um, Iago doesn't really approve of the match between Othello and Desdemona. And I'm not really sure why. He says, I mean, he hates the more. So yep. uh, I to hate quote, the more. Yeah, to quote Act Three, Scene Three, I hate the more. So, <laughs> kind of clear. Not a lot of interpretation needed there. But I wasn't really sure why he hates the more. Do you know what what's exactly his motivation? Besides that, he hates the more. Sure. Okay. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, he. So I did a bunch of reading about what people say about it because I was really struck by uh, uh, Iago's last words in the play, which are at the very end, after everything's gone down, after Othello realizes what Iago has done, he says to Iago, like, why did you do it? And Iago says, demand me nothing. What you know, you know. And then he basically says, I'm never going to talk again. And that's his last line in the play. Which is, first of all, kind of horrifying, um, but then also there's been lots of debate over why he says that, why that's what he says to Othello. And a lot of people think that he's really talking to the audience, that when Othello says, why did you do it, he's, he's verbalizing what the audience is thinking, um, because the audience doesn't really understand Iago's motivation, and that Iago, by saying, what you know, you know is both refusing Othello an explanation because he says, well, I failed, I don't owe you anything anymore. But also because there is no real motivation because a lot of people uh, have speculated that Iago is actually just a really, really accurate representation of a psychopath. Um, mm -hmm. And he doesn't have any motivation beyond the fact that he's kind of just a chaos monkey and he wants to cause problems and that he doesn't like Othello. Does he have reasons not to like Othello? Not really. He says he thinks that maybe he's heard some sort of rumor that maybe Othello had an affair with his wife, Amelia. He's not really sure if that's true. And he almost seems like he doesn't really care if it's true. Um, yeah. He also, he thinks that maybe, like, there's something else that he thinks Othello did. Oh, yeah, he he got passed up for a promotion. Michael Cassio, who's his other victim, um, was promoted over Iago, and he's kind of upset about that. But he actually doesn't talk about those motivations at any other point in the play. And some people have speculated that 
this is actually just a mistake on Shakespeare's part, that Shakespeare is just supplying some motivations and not bringing them up again because they're not very interesting to Shakespeare, and he just thinks, well, I have to have some sort of motivation, so I'm going to shoehorn them into this scene. But then other people say it's really deliberate, that these aren't really Iago's motivations. Iago doesn't have a motivation. He's just a psychopath, which is why yeah. he doesn't display lots of passion at any point in the play. He's basically just coldly manipulative. He portrays whatever kind of emotion he has to to the person he's talking to in order to get what he wants. And the minute that person is off stage, he's back to complete cold, um, Yeah, which would make sense if he's actually just a psychopath. So... That's that's what I makes sense to me. Yeah, and there's text to support that too because Amelia, Iago's wife, who probably has the best insight into him than anyone more than anyone else, says jealous souls will not be answered so. They are not ever jealous for the cause, but jealous for they are jealous. Tis a mm-hmm. monster begot upon itself, born on itself. So yeah. that's Amelia Act 3 scene 4. Um so she probably knows that's just the way Iago is. Right. And the idea that that's just the way you are, I think, is the the thing that kind of drives the anxiety behind this play. Yes. Um, and maybe that the feeling that maybe there's something true, true to that, I think, is what's disturbing. Um, so anyway... Iago's got this plot. He decides that he's going to tear up Othello and Desdemona. Um, and maybe on the surface it's like, oh, it's because Othello is dark-skinned, he's black, so Iago's just a racist and he just doesn't want to have it. Or maybe he's just a psychopath and wants to tear things up, and that's just the surface of, you know, what he wants to do. Yep. Um, and so he pretends, he, he he initiates friendship with Othello and starts this very elaborate, extremely clever plot, um, that where he stages this setup to make Othello think that Desdemona is cheating on him and having a, an affair with Cassio. And he stages it really well. And you could see from Othello's perspective, the evidence kind of building it up, building up for it. I also, one thing I want to say yeah. about how, how smart Iago is, yeah. is if if in this play, if the plot were slightly different, if the impression we got was that Iago had planned out every single step of the way, that somehow he had predicted that Desdemona would lose her handkerchief, somehow he predicted that Amelia would find it, and he knew every single every single mechanism that was going to it was going to take to make the plot work. I would roll my eyes and say it was unbelievable. I would be like, no, there's no way. You couldn't have possibly predicted all of that. But he adapts to everything that happens. He doesn't know when he starts what all the things are that are going to happen that he's going to be able to manipulate to his purposes and making Othello think that Desdemona is having an affair. He just sees things happen and then he rolls them into his lies. He's able to take things that he sees and then uh, make them look like this lie that he's spinning. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really, there's a sense in which it's a plot, but also he's making it up as he goes. He's just able to take the things that happen and roll it into his story. Mm-hmm. And so what we see take place here is a pretty radical transformation because what Othello at the beginning of the play is, one could say even the paragon of moral virtue. I mean, he's just the nicest guy. 
that you could see there you know i mean and he's he he's better or more human or more kind than most of the other supporting characters at least it would appear on the surface but iago um iago has a philosophy which he uh exposes in his monologue and that is he says Dangerous conceits are in their nature's poisons, which at the first are which at the first are scarce found to distaste, but with a little act upon the blood, burn like mines of sulfur. So the word conceit here, at that time, there's an idea in poetry. A conceit is an idea. It's not like selfishness as it is means now. A conceit is a, is an extended metaphor. You you set up a metaphor and then you and you let that met- metaphor kind of just um, expound or expand, and so a dangerous conceit. I put an idea in somebody's nature, and once and once it has been placed inside um, the human nature's po- poison, a little act upon the blood, it will just it will just go off. And so this is what he believes about Othello. It's, he says, okay, once I put, plant this seed of suspicion inside of him, then his nature will eventually just take over. And that's exactly what happens. And as we know, because it's a Shakespeare tragedy, this ends horribly with yep. Othello finally believing, totally, totally bought in that Desdemona is a liar and a cheat and strangling her in bed. And he strangles her in the bed that he believes that she cheated on him with in that bed because that's like more just. And then he strangles her rather than stabbing her because he doesn't want to uh, blot out her beautiful form or complexion. There Which does, is he gross. Doesn't, he, doesn't want, he doesn't want to spell out, spill any blood. Um, yes, so you... You, maybe you should talk about a little bit here about why you hate Othello so much. Yeah. I despise Othello. I think he's the worst. So here's the reason. He, when Iago starts suggesting that Desdemona maybe is unfaithful to him, he, the natural, the thing that you would do if you cared about and respected your wife is you would go talk to her. And you would maybe just have a conversation about this this suspicion that you're having. And that seems like really the only way to, like, get rid of the... Like, that's the only way to foil the plot. Um, because from Iago's perspective, he can make things seem like whatever he wants. Whereas the only person who could have actually fixed things is Desdemona. If he had gone to Desdemona and straight up said, Did you give... You know that handkerchief? Did you give that handkerchief to Cassio? Do you have it? If not, why not? And she can say, oh, I lost it. And then it can you can trace it back to Amelia, and it can turn out that Amelia had the handkerchief. Anyway, the point is, the only way to solve things would be to talk to her. And talking to her would be a sign of the fact that you have respect for her, that you think that she is capable of telling the truth <laughs> and of being faithful. And that she is able to clear up those problems. But no, he doesn't communicate with her. He doesn't talk to her, which to me is a sign of the fact that he actually doesn't have any respect for her and maybe that he doesn't really love her. He says in the beginning, 
when they get, they've gotten married and he's justifying the fact that they got married to her father and he says, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, she loved me for the dangers I had passed. So she loved me because I had gone through all these adventures and hardships and she pitied me. And he says, I loved her that she did pity them. So he literally says in the beginning, I love her because she like is sorry for me. Not because of anything to do with her, but because she has some sort of emotional response to me. So he already has said that in the beginning. So it seems like probably he doesn't really love her as much as he says he does. Um, doesn't talk to her. And then in that last scene, he's decided that she should die. And the fact that he doesn't want to, like, spoil her body somehow and doesn't want to spill any blood is gross. Because it's so much focus on her body. <laughs> and then the fact that he thinks there's some sort of poetic justice in the fact that, like, it's the bed. Well, first of all, um, it reminds me of Joseph and Mary, right? Because Joseph thinks that Mary has had an unfaithful relationship outside of wedlock. I'm biblical Joseph and Mary. <laughs> uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. He thinks that she's had an affair. And... Instead of responding the way Othello does, he resolves to put her away quietly. He doesn't want her reputation to be hurt. He doesn't want to cause her pain. Um, and that, I think, is a sign of the fact that Joseph really loves Mary because he still wants to protect her even though he thinks she's done this terrible thing. Othello thinks she's done this terrible thing and he decides he's going to kill her. So then they're in the room and he's decided that he's going to kill her and he's acting all like he doesn't want to do it but he doesn't have to. Nobody's making him. That's not tragic. That doesn't make me feel bad for him. And then Desdemona literally, he's telling her why he's going to do it. He tells her he's going to kill her. And she the whole time is going, no, don't, don't kill me. I didn't do what you're saying I did. She's denying it. And he doesn't have enough respect for her to wait two hours and see whether or not what she's saying is true. He doesn't believe her. Somehow he doesn't think she's capable of telling the truth or whatever. Um, and what, what's so bad about that scene is the fact that by marrying him, she's trusting him in a way that her father says she shouldn't, right? Her father is distrustful of the fact that this is a moor, and he didn't want that match because he thinks that Othello is a bad person because of his race. There's some racism going on. And Desdemona, by marrying Othello, was trusting him in a way that she was actually told she shouldn't, and... Othello is physically stronger than her. And the fact, because, I mean, that's inherently the relationship in almost every single married relationship. And he is able to hurt her. And by marrying him, she's trusting him that he won't. That he won't hurt her or do what he eventually does. And so for him to ignore her when she's saying, don't kill me, I didn't do it. He doesn't believe her. He strangles her anyway, only to find out right afterwards that he was wrong to do that. Is such a violation of trust, I cannot even handle it. So that's the thing that makes him just irredeemable. I can't, I cannot stand him because of that. But then afterwards, he has the nerve to give this monologue where he basically says, don't feel bad for me. I mean, no, he says, feel bad for me <laughs> because it was really Iago and other people made me do it and... Like, I also did great things for the state, and I was good in battle, and, like, don't forget all that good stuff when you're talking about me. And then he kills himself. 
which makes me think he does not realize the extent to which what he did was a horrible thing. It's as if he thinks it would still be, if she had cheated on him, it would have been justified to kill her. And the only thing that makes it bad is that someone else tricked him into thinking she had cheated on him with someone else. So anyway, he's self-absorbed. He doesn't love anyone. Uh, He doesn't have any good virtues, I don't think. Um, He's just the worst. I hate him. That's quite the indictment, yes. And so, (laughs) but I think... I wanted I want to defend him a little bit um, as a sympathetic character, not necessarily because he has a, he is moral in any way, and I, I I and granted you know strangling your wife in bed that's that's pretty bad so pretty bad um, not not gonna deny that, but here's here's the interesting thing about Othello. Um, first of all, I mean it's pretty clear from the beginning that he he is pretty insecure about his own position. Like, he feels like he's treading on thin ice from the beginning. Like, he's maybe got this kind of internal self-loathing. He feels like, I don't deserve to be here. Nobody here really wants me to be here. And maybe he's getting that messages from a lot of different people. And mm-hmm. so when he gets this narrative proposed by Iago that, well, this is just the way the Venetian women are, you know, uh... It's very easy for him to believe that because he already suspects that of everybody else. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, I think that what's interesting about Othello, the, the way he kind of starts, turns his entire attitude, his attitude towards Desdemona entirely around. Like, how can that happen? Can we believe? Is that a plausible thing for a person to do? And I think that that is an entirely plausible thing to do within the context of the story for one simple reason. And that is he trusts Iago entirely. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he trusts Iago entirely makes everything what everything that he does rational. Now, you have to understand, of course, what I mean when I say the word rational. I mean, if A, then B. And if A, then B doesn't mean that B is true. It just means if A, then B. I mean, that's the fundamental setup. That's how formal logic works. Mm-hmm. That is, if you accept the premise of mm-hmm. what is given, then the conclusion would be logical. So if we accept from the beginning, everything Iago is saying is true, then everything else just kind of follows. And well, actually, so, now that I think about it, uh, Othello could probably be renamed Othello, the danger of a single story, <laughs> because uh, yeah. if Othello had just gone and collected literally even two, even just one more story that's not Iago's story, everything might have turned out okay. But he's very willing to accept just one story as long as it's from Iago. Right. Well, here's the thing, though. If what Iago is saying is true, then that makes Desdemona an unreliable narrator. So Othello has reasons for not simply, at least if he accepts Iago's word as truth entirely, he has a reasons to not approach Desdemona directly on the question. Because if she is cheating on him, then everything she says is going to be a cover-up. Like, of course it is. Of Mm. course that's what you would say. 
you know? So it's like, I can't just go out and just say, ask you, did you do this? Did you do that? You know, did you pick up this? Did you give this handkerchief to Cassio? Because if she was having an affair, then of course she wouldn't, she would come up with a story about that. Yeah. Um, And so here's the kind of logical syllogism, which seals the deal for Othello. It's, it's actually the handkerchief, right? Mm -hmm. And, she, he sets up these tiny little plays, these little mini plays within a plays that kind of make it, that support that argument. But what he says at the end, and this is the thing that pushes pushes Othello over. He says, okay, uh, do you know about this uh, handkerchief, right? He sets up a rhetorical question, right? Have you not seen this handkerchief spotted with strawberries in your wife's hand? Othello says, I gave her such a one, t'was my first gift. He says, oh, I know not that, but such a handkerchief, I'm sure it was your wife's. Did I today see Cassio wipe his beard with? Othello says, if it be that, and he interrupts him. We don't know what Othello would have said. You know, Iago doesn't let him come to any other conclusion. He decides what the conclusion is. He says, if it be that, or any that was hers, it speaks against against her with the other proofs. When Actually, the the fact that he owns the handkerchief may not, in fact, be conclusive evidence. But Iago directs Othello to think that's conclusive evidence. And because Othello has already accepted Iago's word as truth, then it follows that's conclusive evidence. Right? Yeah. Um, so, So... I think that that's like the danger of this rationality of like logic. If we just accept this one premise. And I think that that's really what kind of undoes Othello to a great degree mm-hmm. is, um, is like, yeah, like you said, the, the danger of a single story. So, but like, that's why I'm saying like the fact that what Othello did or the conclusion that he came to was wrong it like it makes sense from his perspective to not talk to Desdemona because, you know, his whole notions of truth are just completely shattered by mm-hmm. this accusation. And that's what accusations do. And it makes me kind of think of like, you know, Anna Karenina to a large degree because Anna Karenina cheats on her husband. And what happens after the act of cheating on her husband is the fact that he she actually begins not trusting her own husband when she has no reason to do that but she starts cheating she starts mistrusting her husband because she realizes that you know I'm a liar right I'm yeah. an actor everything I say is not true so why should I believe that anything that he says is not true so it's like once you take one brick out of the wall, then the whole thing falls over. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what happens when you, with with the, the kind of deconstruction of morality. Yeah. You know. And I. Okay. Yeah. One, sorry, on. one thing really fast. Just the, the communication aspect. I do think it's important. I think that part of one of the themes of this play, and maybe this is an intentional theme, but one of the themes is not communicating being a bad thing that he should talk to desdemona that like i understand that rationally you would think i can't do that and the thing is he sort of tries actually and i do want to point that out i just think he does it really poorly because he goes to desdemona 
and this is actually something I think she she does poorly, that she handles poorly in the play. But it also makes sense on her end why she does. Because he goes to her about the handkerchief thing, which is good. He should do that. But instead of saying, hey, do you still have that handkerchief? Like, did you lose it? Um, because he's trying to figure out how Cassio would have it. And he doesn't have to say, did you give it to Cassio? But, you know, where is it? And, like, did you lose it? Because if she lost it, it is totally plausible that, you know, somehow it ended up with Cassio. Um, but instead, he makes her scared. He says, you know that handkerchief I gave you? And she's like, yeah, I know that handkerchief. And he says, okay, like, that handkerchief is super important to me. And here's this whole backstory of how I got it. And that's super important. So, like, don't lose it. Don't give it to anyone because that would be unforgivable. That would be horrible if you did that. And she did lose it. She doesn't know where it is because she was just talking about how she had misplaced it. And she doesn't tell him because now she's scared. (laughs) She says, no, I have it. And he says, okay, well, then go get it. And she can't do it because she doesn't really have it because she did misplace it. Um, And so he does try to communicate. He just doesn't communicate in a way that's actually respectful to her or direct. Okay, so then we get to the to the idea or the argument that Othello is actually consciously accelerating this disaster in spite of the lack of evidence for it. Right. And that would suggest that he actually just wants it to happen, that not only does he not love her, but he actually hates her. Okay, so this is where we get into Iago's philosophy or contemplation on human nature because what Iago essentially believes i mean it makes othello to be out like a sociopath or a psychopath like iago is Mm -hmm. because and but that's what iago believes to be true about all people um because he says once i unearth this little motivation in you you will just go and go on a rampage basically and so there's an idea that othello is actually doesn't really have a motivation, just like Iago, doesn't have a real motivation for killing Desdemona, but just wants to kill her because he's a violent person. Yeah. Um, so this idea of nature coming up um, comes up in a lot of different places, and I'm just going to read a couple quotes here. So right after that scene where uh othello is fighting with desdemona that you were just talking about there's a character who says is this the noble moor whom our full senate call all in all sufficient is this the nature whom passion could nor dart of chance could neither graze nor pierce and then later we have iago here act one scene one Heaven is my judge, for I, not I for love and duty, but seeming so for my particular end. For when my outward action doth demonstrate the native act and figure of my heart, in complement extern, tis not long after, but I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for daws to peck at. I am not what I am. That last line, I am not what I am, is a direct inverse of the biblical uh words of yahweh i am what i am i think it's there's deliberate uh, inversion there that he's saying i am not what i am a total denial of the self he's an antichrist he's an antichrist um here's some other uh quotes on 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 nature 
Mm-hmm. Cassio gets in a drunken brawl and loses his lieutenant status. He says, oh, I have lost my reputation. My reputation, my reputation. I have lost my reputation. I have lost the immortal part of myself. And what remains is bestial. Hmm. And that's kind of what Othello believes is he's lost his reputation and what under what is underneath is a beast. Yeah. And part of that is part of that is has to do with this narrative that he's a Turk or that he's a Moor. Um, but I think the idea of a Turk is interesting for that reason. Because um, the idea that you know, I've tried to improve myself. I've tried to make myself a better person. And maybe he has. Maybe he's made a real moral effort to become a better person, you know, to get away from his violent old Turkish ways. But maybe he's afraid. He's constantly afraid that 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 violent Turk within him is going to come back out. And once he loses all of these externalities, then the Turk within is going to take over again. Mm-hmm. And this idea of the ec- externality is really important because at least in Othello's culture or time, and maybe not just in their time, there's an assumption that your outside defines your inside. Mm-hmm. So, um, and he actually believes that about himself, where he says... Her name, that was as fresh as Dion's visage, is now begrimmed and black as my own face. Which is a really interesting thing because now, I mean, he has the assumption that, you know, black is black, black outside is black inside, white outside is white inside. Mm-hmm. And, and people who are ugly are ugly inside and people who are beautiful outside uh, are beautiful inside. And so that's a huge Iago's challenge is actually in some sense, there's some truth to what he's discovering. And that is your inside is not your outside or it may not be. And there may be more inside of you than there is outside of you. So again, there's truth in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some sense, he's discovering something true about Desdemona. And that is her inside is not her outside. And then if that's true, then what is it? But there's more, he, you know, he's not the only person guilty of this crime. Desdemona believes the same thing. Amelia mm-hmm. and Desdemona are discussing Othello, like, what's going on with him? Why is he going all wacky? <laughs> Amelia says, is he not jealous? Desdemona says, who? He? I think the son where he was born drew all such humors from him. Uh, So it's the opposite assumption. Well, he can't be jealous because he's black. So that's just not in their nature. They don't do that. Yep. <laughs> they don't have that problem of jealousy or envy. All the, the, the sun drew all those humors out of him. Um, so Iago, in some sense, is going, is going off of some kind of truth here. And that is, you know, there's, there's an internality. There's an interior to you. And once you gaze into that abyss, um, you know, there's no going back. You don't know what you're going to discover in there. I also, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I do want to point out, just because this story involves involves race, <laughs> uh, race is a factor in this story, um, 
I do. I think it's important. Actually, it's kind of like the Merchant of Venice, where in the Merchant of Venice, Shylock is a Jew, and that's super important for the story. Um, but that Shylock is a is a villainous character because Shakespeare's time is very anti-Semitic, and the play itself isn't is really not anti-Semitic for its time. Um, but still the way that Shylock is portrayed would be really racially problematic, uh, if it were written right now. Um, and I think this play is a little bit similar in the sense that the very idea of Othello being kind of afraid that because he's a Turk or black or whatever, you know, whatever his race actually is, that that somehow means that there's some, like, violent nature that's gonna come back and that he has to go, like, hang with the white people (laughs) in order to not succumb to that nature, that is maybe an assumption that Shakespeare has about the world, because that's maybe an assumption that everybody has at that time. And it's an assumption that we sort of have to adopt a little bit to really understand the play, I think. I think it's worth noting that, that that's an assumption that isn't true. But I do think it's probably an assumption that Shakespeare has, and that it's sort of necessary for the play to work. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense. And... Um... But also, I think the point that I'm that I'm making here, my my racy defense of Othello, <laughs> is that in that is that this notion that the outside determines your inside, or this idea of externality being part of our nature. I think that the reason why this Iago's plan works psychologically on Othello and why the whole events of the play transform, take place, it actually is plausible to us, is because part of what he is saying is actually true, that there is a truth in this this externality, the fact that of your physicality. And by that, I mean, like, for example, you know, if you, it's been shown that if you are in a bad mood and you smile, you will actually start feeling better, right? Mm-hmm. That to change your physical, the physical aspects of your existence can actually change your internal state, um, right. which is, which is not a great thing, if that your your physical characteristics are immutable and they're shaping your internal state negatively does that make sense right that's not a good position to be in you're in a you're in a big you're in big trouble if you have immutable physical characteristics that are permanently determining your internal state of mind and then that really opens up very uncomfortable questions about like exactly what is a human being and can we actually transcend that you know, mm-hmm. if we are born with some kind of, let's say, disability, right, or physical right. disability or anything, you know, that may hinder our internal state, you know, is that ultimately just the way things are in the world? And there's maybe some kind of uncomfortable doubt at the end of the play that suggests that maybe it, that is the case. Um. But I think that there is kind of a way to, to to be rescued from that problem, which I which I want to want to get at in a second. 
but a couple other thoughts here. So there's that problem, this this problem of externality determining uh, uh, of this problem of externality determining your interior. That's the first problem. The second is um, that your interior, whatever your interior is, is fundamentally flawed, and that's what your nature is, right? Right. Um. And then the final stroke, which is the most damning, probably the best exterior person that is Desdemona, which in Othello mind, Othello's mind is the best person, is actually foul. Right. And mm-hmm. that's what Amelia says to Othello. Othello and Amelia are having a discussion. Othello's asking Amelia whether trying to figure out whether she's true or not. And Amelia says, for if she not, if she be not honest, chaste and true, there's no man happy. The purest of wives is is foul as slander. So now the best or the most good thing that I can possibly imagine is evil as well, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where like rational or the rational accuser is kind of deconstructing every single thing that we think could possibly be good so that nothing good ultimately remains. Right. And so the reason why I think that it's it's important to accept these problems as real is because I think that once we do accept these problems as real, then the truth of Christianity becomes it becomes more important to us why Christianity is actually necessary and how it actually solves this problem. Um, and I think that if we don't if we if we just kind of dismiss the problem of externality versus internality, then we miss something important about what Christianity does in solving that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean about this is is okay, so there's this idea, in Augustine called interiority. It's called Augustinian Augustinian interiority. And Augustine developed the idea that there is an inside of you. And this was a very early idea that there is an unconscious far before we had Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung talking about the unconscious and facing the shadow and whatnot. Um, And in some sense, it's an anecdote to Freud. Because Freud believed, okay, there's an unconscious, there's an id, and it's just sex and aggression, right? That's all yep. there is, fundamentally. And there's the superego on top, right? And that's kind. Of, and the superego is this little crust on top of the id underneath, which just kind of keeps the id from turning into a monster. But you take off the superego, and the id is just going to go nuts, which is kind of what Iago believes, all right? And Augustine believed this too. He believed that there was an unconscious that was bigger than the inside. Um, But he says, when you actually seek deep into the abyss, into the unconscious, um, you find more than just the id. You find Mm -hmm. more than just human. There's more than one nature, you could say. But it's it's mixed up. It's kind of difficult to separate the wheat wheat from the chaff. It's a big, it's a, it's a, it's just kind of this blob it's it's an abyss it's dark mm-hmm. you can't really understand everything that's going on in there and so augustine's idea of interiority in his book confessions is 
he kind of uncovers the unconscious when he starts talking to his soul as a person, which is something that he, an idea that he got from the Psalms, because the Psalmist says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you uh, disturbed within me? Which is what Othello should have done, right? That's what right. he should have done. Why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed within me? You talk to the soul as if it is a person. You question it. You interrogate it. You try to figure out who is the stranger inside of you, right? Right. Who is, so like, you know, he discovers that there is a stranger inside of Desdemona, which is true. There is a stranger, but he doesn't interrogate it. He mm-hmm. doesn't investigate. He doesn't say, let's get to know the stranger and confront it. And what Augustine believed is once you go inside yourself, you can actually, you, you can find God in there, Right. That there is yeah. a part of your nature that longs for God. There is a there is a nature which seeks after evil, and there is a nature inside you that seeks after God, mm-hmm. right? And there is that ambiguity between the two kinds of nature, which you know Saint Paul was wrestling with because he was very vague about the definition of nature. Right. Right. He uses nature in two different contexts. He says nature is my nature makes me do the thing I hate, but he also says that, you know. Um, you know, the heart is desperately evil and deceitful above all things. Um, There's no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. But he also says in the same vein, my nature is one that longs after God. That is what I was made for. Mm -hmm. And so there's a vagueness. There's two ideas of nature. Maybe as Dostoevsky says, right? Um, The the nature or the battle between good and evil is not between two persons but between the playing field or the battlefield is actually the human heart right and augustine believed that this is what rescued him from manichaeism or dualism right the idea that there's a good person and there's a bad person rather there are multiple people inside of you and there are good people inside of you and bad people inside of you yeah you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and so i think that once we accept that, then that solves the problem of externality because we because the Bible says that we're made in the image of God. So, in fact, our external thing, no external characteristic of ourselves is actually an indication of our darker nature. It's actually an indication of of God. You know, yeah. of the better angel of our nature, every yeah. single aspect of it um, and every single physical characteristic is, in fact, an aspect or image of God. Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I was really long and rambly and I and I feel like I I didn't really make say that very well. But no, I think I think that's true. It was a real and struggle. I, I think that's probably about the best defense of Othello as you can get. Uh because I have to get in one more dig at Othello <laughs> before we're done here. Um, two, two thoughts that are sort of relating to how we, how we connect Othello, which is a super dark story, to the gospel, which I think you did a really good job of doing that. I think another way to do it is, well, first of all, Iago says, when he, like I said earlier, when he says, what you know, you know. One way to interpret that is he's talking to the audience, right? There's no other reason than what you've seen. I'm just that kind of guy. 
But then also, you can interpret that as him talking directly to Othello, and basically what he's saying is, what you know, you as a person, you Othello, what you know, that's the only thing you know. You are incapable of listening to the people around you who might tell you the truth because you're so wrapped up in yourself that you're the one mm-hmm. who destroyed yourself. Um, it's your knowledge, or what you thought was knowledge, and your problems, and your your nature that destroyed you, not me. What you know, you know. Um, and I think that's a really insightful way of interpreting that line from Iago. Because I actually think that Othello's main problem, ultimately, I agree, everything you said is true, but also... The play, the events of the play wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if he had loved Desdemona. And I don't think he did. And that's really, Mm -hmm. the lack of love is sort of at the heart here. Because what you were saying about how Desdemona isn't what she looks like on the outside. Like, when Othello talks about Desdemona, he primarily talks about her exterior, right? He talks about her body, her physical body. Right, and that's why he doesn't want to, he doesn't stab her. Because he thinks that's the only thing good that's left, right? Exactly. But I I don't think he ever thought, I think he always thought that the only thing that was good about her was her body because he just didn't accept the fact that there was anything other than her body. And so Iago is not just introducing she may have been unfaithful to you. He's introducing this idea that she is a person apart from, apart from her body. Yeah. But also the thing is that he doesn't believe that about himself either, mm -hmm. that there is something about him apart from his own body. Or sure, that there's but I think a, it's more offensive. Well, maybe that there's a good part of him apart from his body. Right. And that that's a problem, too. And maybe that leads into the problem with Desdemona. But I think it's more offensive for him to make, like, a sacred vow to this other human being without accepting the fact that she is a human being apart from her body. And, of course, she's a woman, and this is, you know, the time of Shakespeare, and so that makes it even more complicated. Um, and there's maybe not just some racism going on, there's some sexism too, because he doesn't seem to respect her as a human being, and he doesn't seem to think that she, that, I mean, her whole being is her body, which has a different kind of connotation when we're talking about a woman than it does when we're talking about a man. Um, but that if he had loved Desdemona, then he would have been willing to find out who she really was. And even if she had done what he thought she had done, even if she had had flaws in the way that he thought that she had flaws, he would have been, he would have loved her anyway. And that yeah, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have did, did, did what he did and strangle her in bed. Yes. Right. <laughs> if he knew what he didn't know, but turns out he just knew what he knew. Right. You know what and, you know. <laughs> yes. But I would say, I mean, the I guess the only thing I'm, I'm saying here is that if Iago's philosophy about human nature and human beings is true, if it was true, then everything Iothalo d- does is justified. You know, everything, yes. that he, everything that Iago claims about externality and internality interiority right if all of those is in fact true about human beings then that's really just that's the solution that's what you do you know Mm -hmm. you strangle 
you know, you're like F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, the beautiful and damned, you know, it's just this little crust of beauty on the top and everything else is, you know, and that's the only thing we're saving, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is the fact that love would solve that problem because love yeah. would make it impossible for Othello to even accept that premise mm -hmm. um, because he would love her enough to want to know her even if what he learns about her is is bad, right? Yeah. Even if she does turn out to have a dark side, even if she does turn out even to have been unfaithful, if he really loved her, he would want to know that because he would want to know her. And he says he has this scene where Iago, after Iago introduces the idea that maybe she's been unfaithful, and he says, I wouldn't care if she had slept with everyone in my whole army if I didn't know it. I don't want to know, which I think shows the fact that he doesn't actually want to know her. He's actually not interested in her at all. He's only interested in how she does something for him and the fact that she pities him and the fact that she, like, appears to be faithful to him. That's what's interesting to him. That's what he cares about. And it's that lack of love, I think, that destroys him. Iago's lack of love <laughs> leads to... he He's able to play into or play up Othello's lack of love. He's able to hit him exactly in that right spot, which is, I would argue, Othello's real fatal flaw um, is not the fact that he's naive or gullible or something, which is what Iago says about him. I think Othello's problem is that he doesn't love anybody. And if you don't have love, then, you know, you you're, nothing. You're, you're nothing. You're clinging symbols. <laughs> um, and that's all. that's all that Othello is. And that's right. why I think no no defense of Othello is really going to make me super sympathetic to him because, I mean, he's very human. He's not, he's not a, he's not an inhuman monster and he's relatable in the sense that people, you know, the green-eyed monster, <laughs> if jealousy is a green-eyed monster, uh, people relate to that line because that's true. And people do do horrible things because of jealousy, but jealousy only really flourishes if there's a lack of love. Right. Right. And so, again, to go back to Christianity, I know we're kind of going over time here, but I think this is important to say. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think a good mental picture to kind of put this in is, you know, like, well, you're in a courtroom. You're in a courtroom and you're on trial. I mean, this is the story, the human story. You're on trial and there's the prosecutor, the accuser. That's what the word Satan means. Mm -hmm. And the prosecutor, the accuser, Satan accuses you of a certain crime and i think the manichaean view the dualist view is that he's just a he's just a bad guy he's evil and he just wants to kill you because you know he's the bad guy and then there's the good guy who saves you and you know you're kind of a neutral person in between in between these two forces mm -hmm. right when in reality, the accuser, the prosecutor, Satan, is actually right. Like, you are actually in the wrong here. Mm -hmm. um, and you do not have love. And not only that, do you not have love, you can't do it. You are incapable of love. Right. And, and then what Christ did is he is the holy paraclete. The paraclete means the advocate, right? Who's going to speak on your defense. Which is ridiculous. How can you do that when you're obviously guilty? Jesus right? is a lawyer. Right. He's a lawyer. He's the perfect lawyer. Uh, but he does, <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's actually a good lawyer because 
he's he takes the punishment, right? So that mm-hmm. it's possible, um, it's possible for your you to actually be able to have love. And so when we we confront the idea of that we cannot love, then that's when we turn turn to God, mm-hmm. and. And our nature, our nature to not love, which is Othello's nature and our nature, is actually capable of being transfigured. So a couple, a last a quote here from, from Augustine who says, it's not, a human's per, it's not a human person's heart and abyss, for what abyss is deeper? It is night, because here the human race wonders blindly. So the only way, I believe, to rescue us from the abyss of the human heart is to act in the faith that we are made in the image of God and not in the image of Satan. Iago. I guess that's the, not the image of Iago, <laughs> you know, even though that that nature is there inside of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've been given a new nature, which means that everything that transforms everything about us from the inside out i think that's true what a depressing play what a good play yeah pretty rough pretty rough so, <laughs> all right well um hopefully we have left on a bit of bit of hope here that is yes you know, don't be a fellow uh, well we hope you enjoyed this discussion and we'll see you in a couple weeks thanks for listening You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Ryan Johnson's 2019 film, Knives Out. Until then, friends, what you know, you know. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new I can see so much more in you